I would invite you to turn in your Bibles this morning to Galatians chapter 5. Galatians 5. We want to continue our consideration of this passage and the theme of the fruit of the Spirit in, it, in general. Galatians 5, verse 22. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such there is no law. May the Lord add His blessing on the reading of His Word. Let's pray and ask for God's help this morning. Let's pray together. Our God and Heavenly Father, we do pray that you would send forth from the very throne of God and from the Lord Jesus, the Holy Spirit, and that our eyes would be open to the truth of your word this morning. Uh, We know that some of this uh, truth today is difficult to, not to understand, but Lord, to put into practice. We do pray that you would help us, help us to receive it, help us to embrace it, Help us to obey your word, we pray, and ask for your blessing. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 The great goal of God's purposes of grace is to conform us to the moral image and likeness of our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And to that end, when the people of God are converted and they're brought out of their darkness into God's marvelous light of the gospel, God puts His Holy Spirit within us Uh, in order to facilitate that sanctification process within our souls. And one of the ways that the Holy Spirit of God carries on His work of conforming us to the image of Christ is by causing us, enabling us, to bear the fruit of the Spirit, which is nothing more really than a composite picture of the character of Christ, who in His uh, pure humanity... (coughs) perfectly exemplified all of this fruit. Love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness, gentleness and self-control. When you put all those together really as a tapestry of the lovely, holy character of the Lord Jesus. And that's the character which uh, the Holy Spirit has been given to us that that character might be reproduced in us. And so far, we've considered the fruit of love, joy, peace, and then, although out of order, uh, we did consider kindness as well. Now, to this morning, we want to come to the fruit of long-suffering. Long-suffering. Uh, long-suffering is a word that uh, really means to be patient, uh, to bear patiently with adversity to put up with something or someone for a long time, even to suffer with them for a long time. It has the added idea of endurance, of perseverance, especially in the face of obstacles and and difficulties. Uh, The endurance of of a marathon runner, for example, who just keeps on running and running and running, Uphill, even though they're out of breath and about to collapse, but they, but they keep on going. But the primary idea here is that of patience and endurance as opposed to impatience or that of giving up. Or the idea of withholding our judgment uh, rather than uh, allowing a quick temper uh, to bring judgment upon others from us. And today, we want to think through this fruit of the Spirit under two headings. Uh, Very simple, the great example of long-suffering or patience. And secondly, some specific times when we're called to exercise or demonstrate this long-suffering or patience, the fruit of patience in our lives. So first of all, the great example that the Bible gives us of long-suffering or patience, and that is God Himself. In fact... Long-suffering or patience is, uh, we could say, part of God's character. 
Paul, you remember, refers to God as the God of patience in Romans 15.4. This attribute of long-suffering and patience was declared by God Himself to be a, an aspect of His very nature or character. I'd invite you to turn with me to Exodus chapter 34. Exodus chapter 34. And this is a, a rather familiar section of the Old Testament where Moses has uh, begged the Lord to show him, to reveal to him his glory, something of his glorious being. Uh, verse 33, 18 tells us that. And the Lord told Moses that he's to go, that first of all, that no man can see God and live, but he's to hide himself in the cleft of the rock there on, this is Mount Sinai, and that he would pass by him and he would reveal his name to him, reveal his glory or part of his glory to him. And so we're going to just cut into verse 5 here in Exodus 34 and read down through verse 8. Now the Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. And the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abounding in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, by no means clearing the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. And so Moses made haste and bowed his head toward the earth and worshipped. So Jehovah, Lord, uh, reveals himself here to Moses by presenting these attributes to him. And you'll appreciate he does this with words. Uh, God did not come to Moses and give him a, some kind of vision. He did not, he, Moses didn't see some great bright light. He didn't see the very person of God, as it were, by his eyes or anything like that, did he? No, he revealed himself to Moses through words, through the word of God. And so he reveals himself here, he presents himself to Moses, he says to Moses, here's what I'm like, here's a glimpse of my character, here's a glimpse of my glory. And, and God begins with his name, Yahweh or Jehovah, and then he says El or Lord, so it's Lord God, the Almighty, self-existent, eternal, sovereign, covenant-keeping God. Uh, that's a mouthful, but that's really the meaning behind these, the, these names, uh, Yahweh, El. And then he declares five characteristics of his nature, of his communicable attributes in verse 6. He says, I am merciful, and he is gracious, he is long-suffering or patient, and he abounds in goodness and in truth or veracity. And then he gives two illustrations of his character here that have to do with God's disposition towards sin in his creatures. Verse 7, on the one hand he says, I forgive their iniquity and sin, I keep mercy for thousands. And yet on the other hand, God declares, I will by no means clear the guilty or leave them unpunished. I will visit their transgression and iniquity even upon the third and fourth generation. So here you have a statement of God's absolute justice and determination to punish all sin. Well, that's the God of the Bible, brethren. At least this is the part of the uh, character of God that He reveals here to Moses. And this is the God we're called to worship. This is how, and, and this is exactly how Moses responds to this revelation of God's character. Verse 8, it says that he bowed his head toward the earth and worshipped. Now, I'm just going to say something. don't have it in my notes, but I can't help myself. At my age, I do foolish things and say stupid things, so you'll bear with me. You'll notice that Moses does not do a, do a holy jig. He doesn't dance around Mount Sinai, lifting up his hands and waving his arms and go, oh, 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 Jesus is so sweet. No, it says he bowed his face to the ground and worshipped. Mm. We need to have more of that concept of worship in our mind. When we 
are observing all kinds of things that passes worship today, and I'm not trying to be critical. But worship has to do with confronting, or God confronting us in His holiness, His justice, as well as His goodness. And our response should be to bow before Him in awe and reverence and to praise Him with our hearts. So that's what Moses does. He worshiped. That's what the Bible calls worship. He bowed his head and he did it quickly toward the earth and worshiped this glorious God. Now, so that's the God of the Bible. That's his nature. And he says here that as God revealed himself, that he is a God who is indeed long-suffering and whose nature is to be patient and to, to bear a long time with his creatures who oppose him. And so patience or long-suffering is something which is an aspect of God's revealed character and nature. So what is long-suffering? Well, it is his patient endurance in terms of God, his patient endurance of his erring sinful creatures, bringing forgiveness upon them. He says so right here. It's his delaying his judgment of those uh, upon those who provoke him. It's his slowness to anger. <clears throat> In Proverbs, I'm sorry, Psalms 103, verse 8, and Nahum 1 3, this same Hebrew word is translated slow to anger. <clears throat> Psalm 103, 8 says, The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in mercy. And then one other thing about God's patient long-suffering, we must never interpret His long-suffering, His slowness to anger towards sinners or towards our sin as a reluctance to punish sin righteously. And that's why you have this counterbalance here in verse 7 where the Lord says, I will by no means clear the guilty or leave the guilty unpunished that that he will visit the iniquities of the father upon the children and so forth is god patient with sinners absolutely he is is he long suffering towards those who provoke him certainly he is but that patience and slowness to respond in anger towards sin and sinners must never be, be misunderstood as a mere tolerance of sin or reluctance to punish the guilty. God's long-suffering is not open-ended tolerance. God will not flinch to cast impenitent sinners into hell on the last day. God's slowness to anger and His patience was never intended to be abused and misinterpreted as if God was indifferent to sin. No, no, not at all. Rather, the long-suffering and patience of God, His slowness in inflicting punishment, is specifically designed to give sinners space to repent, and that it would lead them to repentance. You know the passage, Romans 2.4. Paul said to those privileged but impenitent Jews, he said, Or do you despise the riches of His goodness, forbearance, and long-suffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leads you to repentance. Why had God been so kind and gracious to Israel? Why had He delayed His judgments upon them, pouring out His anger upon them again and again? Well, it was to lead them, you see, to repentance. That was the goal. Not to confirm them in their rebellion. Not to put His approval upon their sins. But His goodness was designed to cause them to turn away from their sin so that sin would not be their ruin. And it's a fatal mistake, brothers and sisters, or any of you that might be sitting here outside of Christ. God has been so very good to you and He's spared you. He's been very patient with you, with your sin, your unbelief, your impenitence. It's a terrible thing to mistake His forbearance and His long-suffering as His acceptance of your sin. Like God doesn't care about it. Just appreciate His patience and forbearance does indeed have an end. And His goodness is intended to point you and draw you to repentance. That's His gracious design in this. But if we fail to do that, the day is going to come when the long-suffering patience of God is going to come to an end and we will suffer the consequences 
of our sins. God's judgment will come. And He will visit our iniquities with His judgment. But the fact is, brethren, God is long-suffering toward us. And it's a fact. He does not deal with us according to our sins. He forbears with us and is extremely patient with us individually, corporately, and even nationally. Think of some of the examples and illustrations of God's patient long-suffering in the Bible. First of all, God manifested His patience, His long-suffering towards the wicked pre-flood world. 1 Peter 3.20 speaks of the divine long-suffering waiting patiently in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared. And you recall how evil those days were, how filled with wickedness and filled with violence. And remember how God went and called Noah. Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. And Noah went out and preached and he was calling that generation to repentance, no doubt. And and he's, while he's building the ark, and that would be the means of salvation for Noah and his family. And so for 120 years, Noah preached and he exhorted many. He called men to repent and, and, and God waited in the meantime. And His Spirit, it says, strove with men through the preaching of Noah for all of those years. And God was patient and long-suffering towards a very wicked, evil generation. One in which there was but one family on the face of the earth that loved God and served God. And then at the end of that period, God put Noah and his family in the ark and he inundated the entire world with a flood that, that, uh, that, that wiped humanity off the earth. God's wrath, God's wrath was poured out upon every living soul. Man, woman, boy, and girl. But you see, the remarkable thing wasn't the flood. It wasn't God's wrath flooding the earth and bringing punishment for their wickedness and the violence and all the rest. It was the incredible patience and forbearance of God during all those years. That's the amazing thing. How patient and forbearing he was to such a wicked, wicked world. And we look around today and we see all of the wickedness and the perversion and the idolatry of our own generation after all of the light that our nation has had over the years, hundreds of years of gospel light and gospel preaching and God's goodness and blessing and protection of us as a, as a nation. And we wonder, why doesn't the Lord come and sweep us away in His judgment? And the only answer, really, why He hasn't already unleashed His fury upon this world, on America, is His patient, gracious, long-suffering, which I might add, will not last forever. Right. Won't last forever. God's patience is not eternal. But then secondly... He even expresses his forbearance towards the non-elect, towards those that will never be saved. Turn with me to Romans 9, a, a, a chapter that's been in our thinking here lately. Romans 9. And here in Romans 9, the Apostle Paul is addressing and asserting the, the absolute sovereignty of God over all, especially in the realm of giving salvation and withholding salvation. He's answering objections from some of the Jews that simply didn't understand what was going on. And so Paul is outlining what God is doing in the world. And notice verse 18 here in chapter 9. He says, Therefore he has mercy on whom he wills, and whom he wills he hardens. Whom he wills he hardens. Yes, brothers and sisters, God does harden some sinners in their sins. Now people may not like that, but that's what the Bible tells us. God is the sovereign potter, Paul says, and we're the clay in His hands. And Paul's point is God as God has the right to do with His clay uh, anything that He wants to do to make some clay pots 
to, uh, to be vessels of His mercy and others vessels of His wrath, to make some to be vessels of honor and some to bear dishonor for their sin. And that's God's prerogative. Yes, sir. That's His prerogative, brethren, according to Paul. And he says, does the thing, he asks the question, does the thing formed have the right to question the Creator and complain, why have you made me like this? That's a rhetorical question, by the way, and the answer, well, of course he doesn't. Of course, that's, that's imp, imp, impious to do that. But let's read 21 through 24 here. Does not the potter have power over the clay from the same lump to make one vessel for honor and another for dishonor? What if God, <clears throat> wanting to show His wrath and to make His power known, endured with much long-suffering the vessels of wrath prepared for destruction, and that He might make known the riches of His glory on the vessels of mercy which He had prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom He called, not of the Jews only, but also of the Gentiles. Now, the point we see here is that God displays His patience. He is long-suffering in inflicting His wrath, even on the vessels, on people, uh, whom He has determined are eventually going to suffer <clears throat> His wrath for their sins. They are prepared for destruction. And he endures these lost people, these rebellious people, with much long-suffering. He withholds his wrath. He's slow to anger. He endures with much sin. He endures with much rebellion. Before, he, before, before the floodgates of his wrath are poured out, before he punishes them for their sins, even as he displays his saving mercy on those vessels that he has chosen to prepare for glory. His chosen elect people. God is very patient. He's very, very patient even with the reprobates of the world. You notice that how often it's the case. It's not a hard and fast rule, but it's often the case that reprobate people live to be 85, 90, 95 years old. There's a famous lady actress that lived about 100 years old a couple years ago. Everybody's, wow, what a long life. God was being very patient. He was withholding His wrath for many, many years. But the day came when His patience was over. And that person, along with all the others that die in their sins, cast into hell. But in the meantime, he's very patient. He's long-suffering. He's long-suffering with your friends. He's long-suffering with our relatives. He was long-suffering with you. Yes, sir. Until God saved you. But then he also oftentimes manifests his patience, his long-suffering toward us, his sinful, erring, and foolish disciples. Uh, you think of how patient God was to the nation of Israel, for example. How they repeatedly provoked Him over and over again with their sins. How they rejected His... The prophets would come and they'd, they'd turn away from the prophets. And, and yet how long the Lord bore, bore with that nation. Or you think of how patient and forbearing the Lord Jesus was with His own disciples. I think of how often they tried His patience, how dull of understanding they were. They, they had little faith at times. Their pride and jockeying for first place in His kingdom. And there were days when they simply were blockheads spiritually. Or how Peter actually had the audacity to rebuke Jesus. said, far be it from you, Lord, you're never going to go to the cross. Never happen." Jesus had to say, get behind me, Satan. <laughs> or how he denied the Lord, swearing with an oath that he never knew him. And yet just a few hours later, Jesus gave him that look of tender rebuke and brought Peter to repentance. He wept out, went out and wept bitterly. But he forgave him and he restored him. And just a few weeks later, <clears throat> he used this same man to be his instrument to preach the gospel to thousands on the day of Pentecost. Now see, that's incredible, being incredibly patient, is it not? Here we, the, the disciple, you see the disciples sound asleep there in the Garden of Gethsemane as Jesus 
is about to go to the cross and die for their sins. And he had asked them to pray with him. And instead of, of praying, you know what they're doing? They're sleeping. They're fast asleep. And instead of reprimanding them or disowning them, the Bible tells us that he gently admonished them. What could you not watch with me even one hour? And he, he even made excuses for them. He says, I know that your spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Well, how, how is it with us, brothers and sisters? How often has he been patient with us? How dull to the truth we are sometimes. How unfaithful we are at times. How full of pride or self-righteousness we have been at times. How often do we fail our Lord, brethren. And yet how patient and forbearing He is with us every single day. It's true, He does not deal with us according to our sins or after our own sins or punish us according to our iniquities. Aren't you thankful He doesn't? He puts up with us and puts up with us and puts up with us over and over again. There's a hymn, if we knew it, we would have sung it this morning. It goes like this. Could we bear from one another what He, Christ, what He daily bears from us? And yet this glorious friend and brother loves us though we treat Him thus. That's the patience of Christ. And so Jesus, as the God-man, he be, the, the God-man, that He is our great example of long-suffering and patience. He's our pattern for patience and endurance towards others. 1 Peter 2.21 says, for, did, for this you were called, that is to suffer patiently, because Christ has also suffered for us and has left us an example that we should follow His steps. That we should follow His example of patience and long-suffering even when He was called to go to the cross. Well, having established that God is a God who is, is patient and long-suffering, that we are to be like Him in this, now this morning let us consider some of the specific times Specific times that we are called to exercise this grace, this fruit of patience or being long-suffering in in our disposition. Turn with me to James chapter 5. And the first time that uh, we are called to bear patiently, and that is in our trials and in our suffering. In our trials and in our suffering. James has a lot to say about enduring trials and temptations, for example. It starts out that way. Count it all joy when when you fall into various trials. How many of us count it joy when we fall into various trials? I doubt very many of us do. But anyway, over in James chapter 5, because there's a lot here, we're just going to focus on this one section. James 5, beginning in verse 7. James 5, beginning in verse 7. Therefore be patient, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, waiting patiently for it until it receives the early and latter rain. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brethren, lest you be condemned. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. My brethren, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord as an example of suffering and patience. Indeed, we count them blessed to endure. You have heard of the perseverance of Job and seen the end intended by the Lord, that the Lord is very compassionate and merciful. But above all, my brethren, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes, your no, no, lest you fall into judgment. Now, appreciate that these poor Christians, and we believe most of them were on the poor side, uh, these Christians James is uh, writing to, they were suffering, they were being tried, they were being tempted, and they were being even persecuted perhaps by, uh, by the rich, 
their wages were being withheld from them by their employers. And it's possible that they were even members of the church. Not sure about that, but it is possible. That they were suffering. They were suffering trial in the church, from the church, from without, from the lost. And James encourages them here to patience. And that's our word. Long-suffering is the same word. Patience and forbearance towards their enemies, towards their persecutors, towards those even in the church who were despitefully using them. And he exhorted them not to grumble one against the other, not to grow impatient with them, uh, not to grow impatient with the Lord or with their brethren or with their situation, but to be patient like the farmer who plants his crop and has to wait for the rain so that his land will produce fruit. Farmers know exactly what they, they, that is. They plant their crop and then they hope and pray for rain. And sometimes it takes a while and the rain doesn't come. He says, be patient like the farmer has to be patient. And then James points this in two directions to encourage us to be patient or long-suffering. First of all, he points us to the coming of the Lord. He says, be patient. Remember, the Lord will soon come. There will be an end to all of this. And He will judge them, and He'll judge us righteously, and so be patient. Bear up with your persecutors. Bear up with your temptations and trials. For the coming of the Lord is at hand. It's right around the corner. The judge is at the door, even now. Now, do you see how practical that is? To help us endure our trials, that regardless of of our trials, what we're facing... No matter how difficult our situation is, regardless of how much we're called to suffer in this life, it's temporary. That's James' point. It's temporary. Christ will soon come. He will deliver us. He will comfort us. He will judge our enemies righteously. Look up, brethren, because your redemption draws nigh. There's a better day coming. Yes. You can be patient. Secondly, He points us to the examples of Job and and the prophets, particularly Job. He says, take the prophets, take Job as examples. Think of all they were called upon to suffer for God. And yet they persevered. They were patient. They endured by the grace of God. And especially remind yourself how the life of Job ended. His suffering was turned to gladness. The end of the Lord was to show him compassion and mercy and to bless him. Remember how he restored Job twofold everything he had. Well, keep that in mind. God has a good purpose in your sorrows. And He will show compassion and pity to you. These things that we find so hard now, so difficult now to cope with, really are for our good ultimately. And so, brethren, we must not allow ourselves to become impatient with God, impatient with His own, with His ways. We're to submit ourselves patiently under His mighty hand, knowing that His ways are good. We're called to be patient. And we're called to persevere to the end because the end is indeed near. It's nearer than we think. And it's a whole lot nearer now than it was when those words were written. But then we must also exercise patience and long-suffering towards those who would be our enemies and personally have offended us. And the Lord Jesus, of course, modeled that kind of long-suffering and forbearance towards His enemies and accusers. He was being falsely accused, you remember, in Pilate's and Herod's courts. And he was sentenced to die unrighteously and unfairly. Uh, He was a lamb before his shearers. It says he opened not his mouth. Think of that. He's being falsely accused and sentenced to die on a cross. But he opened not his mouth. And he calls on his disciples... That, that like Him, we're to love our enemies and to, we're, we're to bless those who curse us and do good to those who hate us and pray for those who spitefully use us. And I would submit to you that's one of the hardest commandments in all of the Bible. Our flesh wants to, to get even somehow. Uh, we want to nurse our wounds. But instead, 
The Bible tells us we're to be forbearing. And we're to be long-suffering towards such people. We're to pray for them. We're to do good to them. And we're to return good for evil, not evil for evil. Romans 12, 17-21. As much as lies in you, be at peace with all men. You think of Stephen. Stephen's being stoned to death for nothing but preaching the gospel. And he prays for his murderers. Lord, please don't lay this sin to their charge. Or you think of David in 2 Samuel 16 when a man named Shimei, a relative of Saul, obviously very bitter that David had replaced Saul as king. It says he going on the side of the, of, of the creek or the river on the other side and he's cursing David and he's throwing stones at him and he's taunting him. Come over and fight me. Come out you bloodthirsty man. You rogue. That's what he was saying to the king. Remember how David's men wanted to avenge David and they wanted to cut his head off. David responded to him. He said, let him alone. Let him curse me. For so the Lord has ordered him. It may be that the Lord will look upon my affliction and will repay me with good for his cursing. Instead of retaliating, instead of seeking vengeance on that man, David was humbled and he accepted his curses as messengers from the Lord to keep him humble and keep him repentant. And he was forbearing towards that man and his curses. And it was an act of obedience and submission to God, the God who had sent him to do this. Do we see our enemies... That, I mean by that, those that despitefully use us, those that are critical towards us, those who despise us, do we see them in this way? That God has sent them for my good and for my sanctification. They're like holy sandpaper, God's sandpaper, uh, to smooth off our rough, rough edges. Oftentimes that's what that is. And so we must be ready to forgive them if they repent. Remember Jesus said to Peter, 70 times, 7 times. Now he's not giving him an exact number. Seven's the perfect number. He's saying, just forgive infinitely, as it were. Don't keep an account of how you forgive people. He says, if they come and they ask for forgiveness, they confess their faults to you, and you forgive them. No questions asked. That's, that's the way it has to be. Colossians 3, verses 12 through 13. We looked at this, I think, at least once, if not twice already, about how we're to put on forbearance and, and long-suffering and to be forgiving towards one another, even as the Lord has forgiven you. So this is to be our, this is to be our dress. This is to be our uniform of being long-suffering and patient people. And then certainly we're called to exercise long-suffering and patience towards all of our brethren, especially weak brethren and uh, prickly saints. The very word long-suffering means in the context of the church that there's going to be people who will cause us to suffer. That's what the word means. We're to suffer a long time. And they are prickly saints, we call them. And they can get under our skin. And there's going to be weak brethren, folks that are slow to comprehend the truth. And perhaps they don't live up to all of our expectations or our personal standards and everything. They're weak or even unruly. And I want you to look at 1 Thessalonians because that was the climate there. Uh, the church was a, a, a lovely church, a godly church. Paul loved this church. And, uh, but there were some issues there with some folk. And so 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. And uh, Paul is already given... Um, let's see, what did I say? First, yeah, okay, yes, that's right. Yes, 1 Thessalonians 5. And Paul has already given them instruction in terms of the elders, how, how they're to love and esteem their elders. And then verse 14 he says, Now we exhort you, brethren, warn those who are unruly, comfort the faint-hearted, uphold the weak, 
Be patient with all, and see that no one renders evil for evil to anyone, but always pursue what is good both for yourselves and for all. I want you to notice a few important things about this passage with the church in Thessalonica in mind. First of all, Paul anticipates that the local church will have a variety of members at different levels of growth and need. You notice he mentions four classes of people here in the church. Four. First, there's the unruly people. And these are folks that are walking out of step. Uh, it's a military term. The idea of walking in, in line and, and this, this person is unruly. They're not in step. And in the case in Thessalonica, there were folks there that were, they had quit their jobs and that they, were, uh, they weren't willing to work and they were being dependent on the church and they were unruly. And Paul deals with them in the second letter. But they needed to be warned, Paul says. Unruly members need to be warned, admonished, perhaps even disciplined, as he goes on in the second letter to say. But there's the unruly folks. Then there's the faint-hearted the sensitive souls, where they, they need to be comforted, they need to be encouraged. Then you have, thirdly, the weak ones, who are, uh, they need to be upheld. Literally, it's, it says we're to, to lift them up, to hold them up. And then you have the brethren who are called to do the work of upholding and warning and comforting. And presumably these would be the strong members, the spiritually mature brethren in the church. And not necessarily the elders either. Because he's already mentioned the elders and how they're to be highly esteemed for their work's sake and they admonish and all of that. So yes, they would be involved in this, of course. But, but he says those brethren, as brethren, they're to be involved in this as well. Verse 12, uh, talking about the, the, uh, the elders admonishing. But all of the brethren are to be involved in this. Those who are spiritually healthy, those who are mature in the faith, they're to be engaged in these activities to strengthen the body. That is the warning, the comforting, and the encouraging. Alright? But now appreciate the climate that this warning, encouraging, and comforting is to take place. And that is patience. Again, verse 14, be patient with all. Be patient with all. He says, as you extend encouragement to a faint-hearted brother or sister, do it with patience and endurance. As you warn an unruly brother or sister that's walking disorderly, <clears throat> do it with patience. As you seek to uphold a weak and stumbling brother or sister, again, do it with patience. The whole atmosphere here, the whole climate in which we are to minister one to another is, that is, is, is to be that of patience, not impatience, not like a bull in a china closet approach, but patience and long-suffering and forbearance with the people of God. Now, this is important. This is important. Because people sometimes get the wrong idea. Patience or being long-suffering towards our brethren does not mean that we won't minister to them in their need or even warn them or admonish them if need be. Patience is not necessarily silence or apathy. Patience and warning, encouraging our brethren and being patient, they're not mutually exclusive ideas here. But rather, we're to be patient and exhibit a long-suffering spirit even towards those weak ones, even toward the faint-hearted, even towards the unruly ones while we're seeking to help them, while we're warning them, while we're encouraging them, while we're comforting them, while we're admonishing them. You see that. So it's not patience in the sense of, oh, we just let it go. It's patience in the context of seeking to minister to people. As you minister, be patient in your ministries. That's his point. This is the case in the ministry itself. Look over to 2 Timothy chapter 2. 2 Timothy chapter 2. Great passage. Um, this is meant primarily for elders, I believe. 
but certainly is a principle for all of us. 2 Timothy 2, verses 24, 25, or 26. 2 Timothy 2, 24, it says that a servant of the Lord must not quarrel, must not be argumentative, but be gentle to all, able to teach. Notice, patient. Patient. And that's the same word, long-suffering. In humility, correcting those who are in opposition, if God perhaps will grant them repentance so that they may know the truth and that they may come to their senses and escape the snare of the devil, having been taken captive by him to do his will. Now here's a person that's either in the church or perhaps a lost person that we're seeking to exhort to repentance. It just says they're in opposition. They're in opposition to the truth, to the word, to the gospel, to Christ or to some biblical precept, whatever it is, they're ensnared by Satan in this particular situation. And it says here that the servant of the Lord, and again, that's primarily talking about pastors, but not necessarily just pastors, but the servant of the Lord is not to be argumentative, that's counterproductive, but he is to gently, humbly correct that person, point out his error, point out his sin, call him or her to repentance. But again, the climate of that exhortation is patience. He must exhibit patience even as he corrects and rebukes that individual. And the reason that the minister, the servant of the Lord, can afford to be patient with such people is knowing that only the Lord can grant them repentance. And so we teach and we exhort and we correct and we, we humbly and gently and faithfully do those things looking to Christ to give repentance that they might be delivered, might be recovered out of the devil's snare. But again, being patient or long-suffering is not necessarily passivity or indifference or silence. Paul doesn't say, you see somebody in the church or you see somebody in sin, you just back off and pray for them. That's not what he says. No, no. He says we're to correct them, we're to teach them, we're to admonish them. But do so patiently waiting on God to grant them repentance. Patiently waiting on the Lord to work in their lives and liberate that person. And so we can't get impatient with God or the person. Because God's ways and times aren't always ours. True. See, if, we, if it was up to us, we'd just snap our fingers and everything would be great. Doesn't work like that. Doesn't work like that with me. Doesn't work like that with most of you either. But do you think that that spirit of patience and long-suffering might be useful in the church? A church that's filled with partially sanctified sinners, people that are struggling with various sins and issues and problems. Do you think patience and long-suffering might help us cope with our enemies? Do you think patience and long-suffering might help us as we witness to difficult people or people who oppose the Word, who oppose us? Do you think patience might help us as fathers or mothers as we seek to train up our children, bring them up in the discipline and nurture of the Lord. Remember, patience is not passivity. And again, some parents think that, well, I have to be patient with little Joey here. I'm not, don't, don't take Joey. Let's take Timmy. I don't think anybody here is named Timmy. Let's take Timmy. And we're just going to let Timmy run wild because we're, we have to be patient with Timmy. No, no, that's not the point. No, you discipline Timmy, you deal with Timmy's sins uh, along the way, you admonish him, you exhort him, you spank him, whatever the case is, uh, but you do it patiently, waiting on God to give him repentance. You see, that's how this works. It's not either or. But do you think that some of us husbands could use more of a patient, long-suffering spirit with our wives? Being more patient with their weaknesses, encouraging them patiently. Wives, do you think you could be more long-suffering with your husbands? Not necessarily ex ignoring their faults and their sins. No, meekly confronting them if need be, but patiently waiting on the Lord to give them repentance. You see, at the end of the day, that's the patience we really all need. The patience to wait upon the Lord. True. For Him to work. To wait on the Lord to change that irritating brother. 
to wait on the Lord to, to sanctify my husband or my wife more fully, to wait on the Lord to save my children or, or people that we witness to or for my unconverted spouse, to wait on the Lord to deliver us from that trial or from that difficulty that is so, so hard, to wait on the Lord to uh, grant repentance to that person who is in opposition to the Word, walking in an unruly way, to wait on the Lord to strengthen that, that, that weak brother, to wait on the Lord to vindicate us before our enemies. But you see, that's what it's all about. That's the patience we all need. And thankfully, that's the fruit of the Spirit. May God give us all more of this fruit. Psalm 27 says, Wait on the Lord and be of good courage, and He shall strengthen your heart. Wait, I say, on the Lord. That's the true patience and long-suffering that we need. And then a final word to any here that are lost and outside of Christ. Whatever you do, don't abuse the patience of the Lord. He has called you and called you and called you through the gospel and He will not always strive with you. The door of mercy is open to you today to repent, to come to Christ that you might be saved. But God's patience has an end, as we heard earlier. And so don't try His patience, because today is the day of salvation. Yes, it is. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father and our God, we come before You today, Lord, asking that You would bless the Word of truth to our hearts. Lord, if there are any here that oppose the Word, uh, we pray that You might grant them repentance, that You might deliver them from the snare of the evil one. Please show Your mercy to them all. And help each of us, Lord, that we might grow in being long-suffering and patient and forbearing, and that we might look more to You, that we might wait patiently on the Lord for You to work and to do those things that we simply cannot do. We look to you in faith and in hope, with thanksgiving in Jesus' name. Amen. benediction from God's holy word. May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the communion of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen. Amen.